Okay, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. So this first epistle of 1 Peter is, I mentioned already, a rich theological message of the practical presentation of the Christian life. Uh, And so that's what we're going to get from this book as we go through it. It's going to teach us who we are and what we ought to do. And those are two important things we need to know. So as we look at our text here, in verse number 1 and 2, it says this, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we look at this text, Lord, enable me to explain it and give a sense of what it says so the people can use it in their life. I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding and that you would weld upon our hearts these truths because they're so important, especially when it comes to days in which we will be persecuted for our faith, ridiculed for it, um, maligned for it, marginalized for it. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to understand and practice so when those days come, we will be ready and we will be armed to do what you want us to do in the right manner. So glory is brought to your name. And I pray this this morning in Christ. Amen. Okay, already we looked at um, the introductory matters of the epistle. The apostle Peter belongs now to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ saved Peter and then appointed Peter to his apostolic office and specifically commissioned him to speak by the authority given to him by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ having all authority in heaven and earth to bring the message to the world. So the Apostle Peter is writing to a group of Christians that were living, as it were, in a pressure cooker in a region of Asia Minor, of course, modern-day Turkey. Uh, We know who lives there now. Becoming very hostile to anyone who would dare be connected with Jesus Christ. So Peter thought it was important for the recipients of his letter to understand three major areas that cover the whole book. The first, uh, and of course in the time of rising persecution, the first area is to understand salvation itself. The second area is to understand, okay, if I'm going to be in a place where I'm going to be maligned, I'm going to suffer persecution, I'm going to need to learn submission. Who do I submit to? And how should I, that submission look? And then the last area he's going to hone in on is, okay, when I do suffer, when I am persecuted, when I am aligned 
for my faith and I, I suffer for it, how am I to respond to the Lord himself and in my environment when that happens? And so Peter really addresses those things in the whole of the book. And so the statement, the purpose statement that Peter has in the book is really Peter calls persecuted Christians to live a holy life as children of God and citizens of heaven, pointing them to the example of Christ, Christ always being the example, and to their future hope. So Peter writes, describing who his readers are as to their literal status. And of course, to who they are in their spiritual status. He wants his readers to see themselves correctly, and that's sometimes what we don't see. We don't see ourselves as Christians correctly. The Word of God has to adjust our thinking, even about ourselves. See, he wants us to see ourselves as God sees us. He calls his readers elect foreigners. He exalts them far above the natives in whom they lived. They are God's chosen people, while the people among whom they are scattered are nothing of the kind. God's election has made us foreigners and aliens, not just to local regions, but to the whole world, anywhere we would go. A Christian would feel that way to some extent. Yet God raises all his children to an exalted state, and that's what he wants us to see. So before us, we have an audience of Jews and Gentiles who are scattered. They were not a people, but now they are a people. They were, of course, living as aliens. That means they lived in a hostile society. They were scattered. They were not living in a place, in other words, as united, a united, protected community. They were living without permanent residence and with really no civil protection. And they were chosen. And that is one of the points that Peter is making right in the beginning of this book. So we're going to see that in this book there is going to be a, a really a, a presentable outline that we can follow, and it's going to be the destiny of the Christian. And the destiny of the Christian is salvation in chapter 1. That is something we're definitely going to see. If you look in verse number 5, it says this of chapter 1, who, were, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. And then in verse number 9, again, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And then in verse number 10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied. And then, of course, again, it lets us know in Scripture, uh, in chapter 2, verse number 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So salvation is on the mind of the apostle and his audience, wanting his audience to really understand what God has done concerning their salvation. And so the first thing he brings to their mind is 
the literal status of the chosen or the elect, those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. See, because we are chosen by God, we have been called to a certain obligation in the world. We have been called to a certain mandate in the world. And that mandate includes several things. The first one is that we have been called to be aliens. If you notice in verse number one, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, that's what we are. He wants us to know that. And of course, aliens are people that are temporary residents, uh, that God's chosen soon quickly realize that they are visiting strangers on the earth. Uh, They are not home yet. And they need to know that when they live, when we live our life every day, we need to know that. They are going to be socialized, socially marginalized people to a certain extent. I know we don't feel that a whole lot in the United States, but in other countries you really do. But we all, we, we should be ready for it in case it comes in a greater measure than we're used to, right? Also, their faith in Christ found no social acceptance with those they dealt with. Uh, like today in the United States, there's really not a social acceptance of Christianity or of real Christianity, biblical Christianity. Uh, there are actually people that don't really talk about it. They don't talk about spiritual things. There's not really a spiritual element in the mind of people uh, too much in our society. We're, we're pretty much secular to the core, and, uh, but we live with them, those who know Christ. Also, we are alien, we have an alien nationality. Uh, of course, an alien is someone who is a, a, a sojourner, a stranger. An, an alien is one who lives alongside others, but they're from a different place. The word is used of those who are temporary residents, not permanent settlers in the land. Those who have a deep attachment to a higher allegiance and to another sphere. That's who we are. So a second thing is that we have been called to be citizens of another kingdom. Now, our mandate then is to live according to a higher standard than the world, a much higher standard than the world, keeping in mind our alien nationality and our temporary residency. That should always be in our mind. So our higher allegiance is that the chosen's higher citizenship is in heaven, and we are only here for a short period of time to reach a world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without turning there, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are not home. And while we remain here, Christians are waiting to be fitted and transformed into our eternal state. That's our future. It says also in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble estate, or our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So we then, an alien society living within a society, members of the kingdom of God, but aliens on the earth. 
So what makes us, what makes us so different? Well, the first thing that makes us different is that we are governed by the word of the living God. We have the Bible that guides us and directs us. It makes us different. Also, the word of God is transforming our mind to cause us to think different. Our whole worldview is different because we're believers, because we're, our minds are being transformed by scripture, and so we are different because of that. We're governed by the word. Secondly, we are different because we obey a higher authority. Our authority is God himself. For Peter says in also in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to do something, to abstain from fresh fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. In other words, as aliens, our authority is to live how God wants us to live. And so we ought to know what that is if we're going to live as God wants us to. We have to know what that is, and Peter definitely will address that in this epistle. And then also we're different because we are in the world, but we are not of the world. All right? we are, we're here, we're in it, but we're not of it. It is not our home, it is temporary. And we are, we are given the ministry of reconciliation. So what does that mean? It means that we are, uh, a third thing is that we have been called to be ambassadors. If you notice in 1 Peter chapter 1, Verse 1, it says, to those who reside as aliens, scattered. Why are they scattered throughout all these regions in Asia Minor? Well, they're, they're scattered there for one particular reason. Because the Lord always scatters Christians. Why? You know why? He wants Christians to be every place on the planet. Why? So he, you can be the witness, or that person could be the witness to bring the gospel to those people. Right? So, in other words, we Christians, as aliens to this world, have been called by Christ to bring the word of God, the gospel, to a world that is steeped in spiritual darkness, and in particular, in our time, to our own unique postmodern culture that is populated by different groups. All right? Baby booners. If you, have been, if you were born between 1946 and 1964, you were a baby boomer. I'm a baby boomer, all right? Then we have Generation X or Gen Xers. If you were born between 1965 and 1980, you are a Gen Xer, all right? And then we have Generation Y. That's the millennial generation. If you were born between 1981 and 2000, you are in that generation. And then we have Generation Z. They, if they run out of alphabet, I don't know what they're going to do with the next generation. But if you were born from 2001 afterward, uh, I don't know, maybe they have know something we don't know. Maybe this is really the end. You know, this is the last generation. Who knows? The Lord can come. But in every one of those generations has its own characteristics and its own needs. But one thing they all need, they need the gospel of Christ, right? And so we need to bring it to them so with our culture's unique characteristics and needs, what they need more than anything else is Jesus Christ. That's what they need. They don't know that. Satan blinds their eyes to see that, but we know that. So that means as aliens, we cannot keep our mouth shut. And if we can't keep our mouth shut about Christ, and we do speak about Christ, that's many times where the persecution begins. 
That's where we start getting mistreated and maligned and disregarded. The one and only institution that has been mandated by God to bring the message of the gospel to the world is the church. The gathered people called out of darkness into light because in the church are found the followers of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has entrusted his followers with his message of salvation by grace alone through Christ alone. Therefore, we are not merely chosen for heaven, we are chosen for earth. God didn't take you when you believed in Christ, he didn't take you out of here, did he? He left you here, right? But he left you here for a good reason. He left you here not only to be a mouthpiece, but to clean up your life by the power of the Spirit so you can be his example and then also to open your mouth to others who don't, in your family, on your, in your workplace, people you're going to meet that I'm not going to meet, and the person sitting next to you, they're going to be people you're, you're not going to meet, and so we need to bring the gospel to those people. We're mandated to do that. So while we're here on earth, while we move through the earth, we're to, to demonstrate an alien lifestyle to the world with the goal to proclaim the gospel, to live out our ambassadorship as citizens of another realm of the kingdom of heaven. So God's children are like Abraham of old. Because Abraham, remember, he, he was in the same situation. And this is what he wrote. This is what scripture writes about Abraham. Look what it says on the screen. It says, now, he was had his eyes fixed on a better country, a heavenly one, whose builder and maker is God. Notice what it says. It says, by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All these died with in faith, without receiving the promise. And having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, that means by faith, grasping them, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then notice in verse number 16, it says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's our outlook in life right here. Abraham is our father in the Old Testament, and in many respects, we're connected to him because he was justified by faith, we're justified by faith, but this was his lot. He saw a city of God, but only, only by faith. So we know we have eternal promises given to us by God, but we hold on to them by faith but we know they're going to come true. So while we're here, we're just like him. We're aliens in a foreign land. We're sojourning, and we, we can say the same thing. We confess that we're strangers and exiles on the earth. So I want you to see that there and our understanding of Election by God makes all the difference in their and our present condition, our outward look on life, and our future. All right, so this brings me to the next 
thing that I was mentioning is that the destiny of a Christian is their spiritual status. We looked at the literal status, the earthly status. Now, what's their spiritual status? Well, their spiritual status is really going to answer a question, and the question is going to be, what is the basis of our being chosen by God? What is the source of our election? What is the purpose or the goal of why we're chosen in the spiritual sense? And so the first thing that we see that Peter brings out is he gives us the basis of God's choosing us. And if you notice in verse number two, here's the first thing he says. Here's the basis of God's choosing us. In other words, Christians are elect first according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, right? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, the next one is the sphere of God's choosing, and the last one would be the purpose of God's choosing. So let's, let's move to the first one, which would be the basis of God's choosing. And the basis of God's choosing, of course, is this particular word that it's according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. God the Father is definitely active in salvation, and so that means that election is not based on God's foreknowledge of our faith. And let me explain that. People will agree that God predestines some to be saved, but they will say that he does this by looking into the future and seeing who will believe in Christ and who will not, then based on foreknowledge of that person's faith, he elects them. If they do not believe, he does not elect them. You see, some believe the ultimate reason why some are saved and some are not lies within the people themselves and not with God. See, all that God does in his predestinating work is to give confirmation to the decision he knows people will make on their own. See, man's choice, then God's choice follows, but that's not what the Bible teaches. See, God's foreknowledge is not in any good we've done. It's not in any nobility that we have. It's not any any kind of wisdom we have more than anybody else. It's not any kind of power that we have. It's not even in our choice of believing It's not even our seeking God. See, God's foreknowledge is not in any of those things. See, this view actually destroys the meaning of the word foreknowledge. Understand this, that in the sovereignty of God, the only thing that can be foreknown are those that are predestined, and this means that election must be prior to faith, prior to anybody believing. Why? Because it's the Father who had the foreknowledge of who would believe. And remember, the Father elects and then gives his sheep to Jesus Christ. And those sheep come after hearing the gospel. And all the Father gives to Christ will come to him. All of them will. And foreknowledge is of persons, not facts. It is a personal, relational knowledge, a special knowledge which is spoken of 
in this word foreknowledge. God thought of certain people in a saving relationship to him, and in this sense, he knew them long ago. Then what does foreknowledge mean? It's really from the Greek word prognosis, prognosis. Foreknowledge means to know beforehand, but God's foreknowledge is much more than knowing what will happen in the future. It includes his effective choice. For example, this term foreknowledge is used in another passage of Scripture in reference to Jesus Christ. And ask yourself this, what does it mean that Christ was foreknown? It says in the word of God in Acts, it says, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man determined delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. See, the father did not look into the future and see that Jesus would be a good candidate for Messiah and then chose him. No, Jesus dying on the cross for sinners, for all those who would receive him as Lord and Savior was determined completely before the foundation of the world. God sets the boundaries. God predetermined a love relationship with us before anything ever happened. I love that passage of Scripture in Acts 17 where it says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Do you know that where you live and when you live has all been determined by God? It's no mistake you're here today. See, that's God's sovereignty. Do you see how radically different that is from the mindset of the world? that we would, the only way we could ever have our minds changed on this matter is from God's word. But if you look at scripture, for example, like John 10, 14, it says, I am the good shepherd. And what does it say? I know my own and my own know me. There's that word connected to the word foreknowledge. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 19, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. In other words, God knows his sheep and his sheep will live differently than the world. See, those both things go together. When the life of God is in your soul, you are different So when people know God, and I pray that he knows you, when people know God in Scripture or when God knows them, it is a personal knowledge that involves a saving, intimate, ongoing relationship. I was mentioning a few weeks ago, Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, what did he do with them? He predestined them to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So this word know or foreknow actually indicates God's choice. 
long before we had a universe and the world was created. God foreknew, foreknew beforehand to whom he would extend the grace of salvation. That means that foreknowledge is best understood to mean those whom he long ago thought of in a saving relationship to himself, as one recent translation expressed it, for God knew his people in advance and chose them to become like his son. So that is the, the first thing that he would, we, would, we should know as aliens on this earth in the spiritual realm is the basis of our salvation. In other words, you had nothing to do with being saved in a very real way. Yes, you did come and repent. You did come and believe. But after God did the work, and drew you to himself, and brought you the gospel, and made you alive in Christ, and then opened your eyes to believe, kept back your, the power of your flesh, kept back the power of Satan, kept back the worldly influence, and you believed, and you were saved. And from that day forward, you're going, yes, imperfectly forward, and you're heading somewhere. You're heading to your eternal home which is, of course, with the Lord in heaven. So the second thing under this one is the sphere of God's choosing. The sphere of God's choosing. This is the next in the spiritual status of a Christian while they live as aliens on the earth. That Christians are, secondly, if you notice in verse number two, it says the second thing, it says they are by the according to the sanctifying work of the Spirit, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So that's the sphere in, of our election. This term by uh, is really indicates that the Holy Spirit produces this sanctification or this holiness or this separation from everything else unto God. This means that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one that sets you apart. It is, it's his job to do that. Another passage of scripture that is similar uh, to that is found in Romans 6, 22, where it says, but having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So this, this particular word is very important, and I want to highlight it here, is by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Because today, there is really some confusion about the teaching of sanctification. And let me point out this morning three dimensions, uh, three dimensional features of biblical sanctification. The first dimensional feature of sanctification uh, in the Christian's existence on this earth is the initial separation from sin. And that's the one Peter is talking about in verse number two. It's the initial being separated from sin unto God. And of course, there's other sanctifications that Peter is going to talk about in this epistle. The second one would be sanctification in the Christian's existence. It includes the hard work of growing in holiness throughout life. That's going to be the Spirit of God's responsibility and our responsibility. Peter's going to talk about that too, but he doesn't talk about that in verse number two. And then there's a third aspect of, of a dimension of sanctification, and it's, 
of the Christian while they're aliens on the earth, and it's the final act of God when he makes his holy people complete uh, and holy for eternity. That's the end. That's the end result that God's bringing us to himself where we spend an eternity with him where we're finally going to be home. So the Holy Spirit sets you apart at salvation. That's positional sanctification. Before God, you are set apart by the gospel. You're set apart now from your sin. So that's the first dimension uh, that the Apostle Peter was referring to in verse number two here. That is God's gracious act of turning sinners into his people. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So verse two is predominantly a reference to conversion, to the act of God saving his people. Peter mentions, as I said, other dimensions in other passages of Scripture. Uh, for example, let's look at a chapter, we'll look at verse number 14, I'm not going to cover that today, but in verse number 14 it says, notice, as obedient children, chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which you were which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. So once we're connected to God, once we have the Spirit of God living in us, conversion, the task now is to make us holy, we're to cooperate with the Spirit of God for that to happen. So here is the Holy Spirit then sets us apart in salvation and, and makes us holy. That means that every true Christian will love Christ and will obey him. Though not perfectly, they will though. In the Gospel of John it says if if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So brethren, there is, there is no such thing as salvation without sanctification. If somebody says they believe and they have no evidence in their life to convict them of being a Christian, there may be a good possibility they have just made a profession of faith and do not have the Holy Spirit of God in them yet, and are still unsaved. All real salvation will produce fruits of that salvation, because it's the Holy Spirit of God that, that is doing it, starting it, that work in us. And so, election leads one through salvation to a life of obedience. Now, some people may think that a little bit strange, but it's nonetheless true that we were effectively called and spiritually made holy and that this election leads to obedience, to God's call and to forgiveness under the new covenant. So that brings me to a third one, and that's the purpose of God choosing us while we're aliens and strangers on this earth, 
right? Why did God do it? What was the purpose? What was the goal? Well, if you notice in verse number two of chapter one, here's the goal. Look what it says. It says, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. That's the goal that God has for us. So that is the passage there, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. So the direction of the believer is that they have been chosen to obey Jesus Christ. It is part of the same package of conversion. And if you notice this language, when does the Bible say that a person or a group of people were sprinkled by blood? Well, there are three reference reference in Scripture, twice in the Levitical law and once outside the Levitical law, law, but the only one that fits is found in Exodus chapter 24, verse 1 through 8, which only happened once in the Old Testament. So if you'd like to take your Bibles there, turn there, and I will have the Scripture on the screen because I want you to see what's happening here And it has to do with obedience. But remember, in the Old Testament, the obedience was under the law. If the people obeyed and kept the law, there was blessing. But if the people disobeyed and did not keep the law, there was cursing. And so if you notice, here's the first passage of Scripture in Exodus chapter 24, verse number 3, where it says, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. It looks like there that they were definitely in the state of mind that they were willing to do what God says they should do. All right. And then a second passage in verse number seven, it says, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So the people were making a covenant of obedience with God, and that covenant is always sealed with blood. That is the ratification of the covenant. And so what happened in this text? Well, if you look at verse number six, This is what happened. It says, Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, setting the altar apart as holy. And then in the next passage, in verse number eight, excuse me, it says, so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this is the picture that's, that Peter's bringing up in verse number two of First Peter, that when the blood was sprinkled on the altar, that was signifying God's part of the covenant. When the blood was sprinkled on the people, and the only time mentioned in Scripture that this, the blood was sprinkled on the people is right here in the Old Testament, signify the people's part of the covenant. So there's God's part and there's the people's part of the covenant. So the blood consecrated to two parties involved in the covenant, the agreement, sprinkling blood on people signifies a dedication of obedience. When a believer is saved by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, which makes their past election a present reality, 
they are then brought into a covenant of obedience to God, sealed and ratified with the blood of Jesus Christ. So in other words, we're not saved by our obedience. We're saved by Christ's obedience. That's his part. But once we're saved by his obedience, it's our job now to what? Obey. All right? And that obedience to God comes very naturally when the Spirit of God is moving us in that direction. So when Christ shed his blood, he brought redeemed man and God into a covenant of obedience. Christ's blood is applied or sprinkled or shed on us in a spiritual sense, and we are by God's Spirit, by God's Spirit, all the people will say, we will obey you, Jesus, because that's what the Spirit of God is producing in my heart, an obedience to you. Peter also, in the book of Acts, said this uh, when he was preaching there. It says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to the right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And then he said, and we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So one of the first obedience we have produced in our heart by the Holy Spirit is to say yes to Jesus and to repent of our sin and believe in him. That's the first step of obedience. So that salvation and obedience are two sides of the new covenant. And this means believers are linked to the new covenant promises written in Jeremiah 31. And just to bring to your remembrance what that says, it says there in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, In the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. In other words, it says in that passage of Scripture, they broke the covenant. What does that mean? They disobeyed it. They disobeyed the covenant. But the Lord says, I'm going to have a new covenant. And that new covenant is going to be different than the old covenant. And that new covenant, in fact, some of the promises of the new covenant is that from Jeremiah that everyone who is connected to the new covenant will have a new heart. It says in Jeremiah, I will give them a heart that knows me. And then the second thing is everyone in the new covenant will have final forgiveness of sins where it says the Lord declares, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. People who are in the new covenant also will have a permanent indwelling of the spirit. He says, I will put my spirit within them. We know from Romans that if you don't have the spirit of God, you're none of his. Everyone in the covenant will have the law inside their heart where it says, I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
So see, this last one indicates that the new covenant people will obey God, not so much because they have to, they will obey God because they want to. See, that's, that's different. I obey God because I want to obey him. There's a difference between obeying, you know, obeying and really disobeying inside. I'll do what I have to do, but I'm inside, I'm not agreeing with this, right? Our kids do that all the time with their parents, don't they? Yeah, okay, I'll do this, but they really don't want to do it. So, so that kind of attitude is, is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about an attitude that I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And because I love him and I'm in a relationship with him, because all these things he have, he's done for me, the sphere of the spiritual and the sphere of, of my literal existence, I know who I am now. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what God's done for me. And that changes everything because now I want to obey God. Whatever you have for me, Lord, I want to do it. That's what I want to do. My heart is changed towards you. My disposition is changed towards you. And when we come to the Lord's table, what do we usually say? We say this, drink it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We are enabled to obey by the Holy Spirit. We cannot obey on our own. We don't have the attitude to obey on our own. The Spirit of God does that within us, but we cooperate. So when the Holy Spirit of God says to believe and be baptized, a believer's response should be, I love you, Lord. I want to obey. When the Holy Spirit says not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together, a believer responds, I love you, Lord. I want to obey. When the Holy Spirit tells us to study the word and make ourselves workmen that are approved, rightly dividing the word of God, a believer's response should be, I love you, Lord. I want to obey. When the Holy Spirit says, be present and partake of the Lord's table as oft as your church assembly does it, a believer's response should be, I love you, Lord. I want to obey. When the Holy Spirit says, husbands, be filled with the Spirit, love your wives, his response should be, I love you, Lord. First, I want to obey. When the Holy Spirit says, wives, be filled with the Spirit, submit and respect your husbands as unto the Lord, her response should be, I love you, Lord. I want to obey. When the Holy Spirit says, be thankful in everything, rejoice always, and pray without ceasing, a believer's response should be, I love you, Lord, I want to obey. When the Holy Spirit says, abstain from all forms of sexual immorality, a believer's response should be, I love you, Lord, I want to obey. When the Holy Spirit says to young people, flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, a believer's response should be, I love you, Lord, I want to obey. When the Spirit of God tells young people, you children, to obey your parents for this is right and good, if that child is a born-again, blood-bought believer, if they've come to real faith in Christ, then their desire should be before God. I love you, Lord, and I want to obey. 
I don't need to go on. And when I say the Spirit of God speaks to you, I mean through the Word. And when He does, that means you're going to be Word-saturated to be a good, obedient Christian, right? You're going to know God's Word. You're not just going to have a casual connection to God's Word. You're going to know it. You're going to know what it says. You're going to know who you are in Christ. You're going to know what God's done for you in Christ, confident of it. And then you're going to know how to live every day. Every day of your life, you're going to know how to live. And that's what God's called us to. So that's who we are. We're aliens living in this world. We're called to a certain mandate, a certain obligation, and we ought to meet it. And so you know what Peter's going to do? He's going to help us meet it. That's what he's doing in this epistle. He's helping us meet this mandate. So the purpose of God's choosing, the purpose and goal of election is obedience. And here's the bottom line. Knowing who you are and what God has done should impress upon your mind that salvation has a divine origin to it. So that means suffering and life's trials cannot shake it. Life's trials cannot remove it. No matter how much a Christian suffers, even to the point where they become a martyr, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. No demon can do it. No person can do it. No situation can do it. Because Christians are to be assured of the permanence of their salvation. They are to know that trials endured by faith with a proper understanding of God's eternal salvation will only bring a believer closer to their Lord into a deeper abiding faith in God. Knowing that the work of God is a permanent situation and this world is a temporary situation. We live on a disposable planet, right? Heaven and earth is going to pass away. There's going to be a new heaven and earth. So how we live here, though, with the time God ordained for you to be here, is very significant because you can't live the way you want to. You'll have to live the way God wants you, and you will if you're a believer. So I pray that God would change our minds this morning. And look how this great salutation ends. Did you know this is a salutation? This is only an introduction to the book. Look how it ends in verse number two. It says, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. I believe the reason why he says that is because we're going to get into the book. We're going to find out that we're going to, we may experience multicolored trials. Well, here he is saying, listen, God's, may God's grace, that means his abundant provision for us, and peace, that God's abiding, abiding protection for us, may they be made uh, in a multiple of ways by God. Just like you have a multiple varied spectrum of trials, that God would give you a multiple spectrum of blessings, of grace and peace. That's what he gives us. So he starts out this book in a way that he wants his 
readers to say, listen, you guys are special to God. And everything he did for you and has done for you and will do for you cannot be reversed. Nothing can change that. Now go and live your life as an alien in another society for me. Be a mouthpiece for, for me and let your life reflect what you believe. And you will be an influence to other people and you will bring glory to God. And you will obey in all that. And all God's people said what? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you once again for your word. It is awesome to know these things are recorded for us. It's not an, a musty old book that doesn't mean anything today. It is a book with great significance and is more up to date than tomorrow's newspaper or the Drudge Report. So Lord, I thank you that for those who are your children, we don't have to be in the dark about any of it. We can know exactly what we're supposed to do. And I pray, Lord, that this morning, if someone doesn't know you as their own Lord and Savior today, maybe the day they come to believe in you, that Holy Spirit, you may give them that life that causes them to obey and say yes to Christ. For us, Lord, who have been in the faith, maybe a short period of time, maybe Five years, 10 years, maybe longer than that, longer periods of time, some of us. Lord, continue to make our heart soft and that we would be very sensitive to the moving of the Spirit of God as, the, as we hear him speak through the word of God to our hearts. Lord, that we would, I pray, be more obedient to today than we were yesterday, that we would be more ready to do your will and have ourselves given over as a living sacrifice to you than we ever have before. And I just pray, Lord, that you would take us and conform us to the image of Christ so you can use us because we know, Lord, we're not only called for heaven, we're called for earth. And Lord, I give this all to you today. Do your work in our life. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. Let's, let's stand together.